Let's see. On many Sundays, um, as we uh, go through our liturgy together, we come to what we call the summary of the law. And uh, thank you. Um, thanks, Ron. We come to this, what's called the summary of the law. You see it in your bulletin, and we just recited it a few minutes ago. Uh, and sometimes when I'm introducing the summary of the law, I will say, I'll ask, this, I'll ask this question. I don't know how many of you remember this, but I'll say, I'll ask this. I'll say, how many of you like to be told what to do? Yeah, you remember that, some of you? Some of you didn't see some nods. I'll say, how many of you like to be told what to do? And of course, I ask it, I ask it in that way as a way of sort of just sort of, you know, reminding ourselves that at the end of the day, like, it's like hands off. We want to live our own lives. Don't tell me what to do. So our first answer to the question, who wants to be told what to do, is really no one. No one wants to be told what to do. And so as we enter, this is our first Sunday that we'll be talking about the Ten Commandments. And it's like, are you kidding me? You're going to talk about the Ten Commandments for ten plus weeks. We're going to talk about God's law, right? We're talking about commandments. And it's like, oh, that's going to be depressing, right? This sense of, oh, I've got to be told what to do. But as I usually go on in the liturgy, as I say, hey, who of us likes to be told what to do? I say, wait a minute, time out. There actually is a time and a place in, in our situations in which we actually desperately want to be told what to do. Have you ever been really, really sick and you had no idea what was wrong with you? And you're like, oh, if only I knew what to do. Right? If only doctors, sometimes you've ever been to actually to a doctor and the doctors didn't know. They ran all these tests and no one knows what you need to do in order to feel better. It's like, oh, someone only tell me. Have you ever been lost? There were a couple of times, uh, just very irresponsibly as a kid, I grew up in Montana and I'd be out hiking and we would depart from the trail. And we're, oh yeah, I know exactly where I am. I got this. And then suddenly you realize, as you're in a woods or whatever, you look around and you, you, you've lost your sense of direction. And you know, the, your heart just sinks. And you're like, where am I? And you get lost. So it's not only when we're sick, it's when we're lost. And so we're often, I don't know if your parents have ever been in situations of the night before a birthday or the night before Christmas, when you're trying to assemble a toy, right? You get this toy, oh yeah, and then your, you know, your spouse says to you, honey, can you just really quickly, just, just really quickly assemble that whatever, that bicycle or something like that? And you're like, oh, I got this. You're like, no problem. You start putting it together. It doesn't fit right and whatever. You get frustrated. And the instructions are bad. It's the instructions fault, of course. But sometimes they are. And we're like, oh, if only we had, only had good instructions to know how to build something. See, so often in life, it's true, we get sick. Maybe not physically sick, but we, we realize there's something wrong with us. We realize that we're not doing things right. We keep on doing things, the same thing again and again, and we're hurting ourselves, we're hurting others. And we think, ah, oh, if only I knew the way out. Or we get lost, not physically lost, but just of lost in the world. Disoriented. You know, whenever I have people come into my, my office for counseling, there's one thing that describes every single one of them. They're confused confused. They're seeking counsel. So again, when we're sick, when we're lost, when we're trying to build our lives, not just build a bicycle, we're trying to build our lives, trying to get somewhere, we're trying to make something of our lives. And here's the thing that I want you to see, that at the end of the day, I don't care who you are, how religious you are, what your ideology or just philosophy on life is, we are all listening to someone. 
we're all following someone's advice. We're all trying to figure out how to do this thing called life. We're all trying to find the way, or at least a way, not just a way really, but the best way. We don't want to do this thing called life poorly. We want to do it right. And here's the thing, we get one chance. You get one chance to be in junior high. You get one chance to be in high school, more or less. And it may take us a, some of us a few more years. One chance to go to college, one chance to get married the first time around. One chance to use our bodies in a certain way. To use our money, our time, our words. You were spoken words that you realize that you'll never be able to take back. And you're like, what was I thinking? See, we're all listening to someone, even if that someone is ourselves. I'm sure some of you have heard the sort of this, the sort of the story, the, the tale of the teenager, the rebel, the rebellious teenager who says, you know, he, he graduates from, from high school and he's got people telling him what to do next. You know, you should go to college, you should take up this career, that career, whatever, or you should do this and that. He said, he looks at everyone and says, you know, I'm 18. I don't have to do what anyone says. No one's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to go into the army. It's like, mm, ah, okay. All right? All right? Good. The question is, to whom are we listening? To whom? Why? Why them? Because make no mistake, whoever you're listening to most, they own you. They control your life. Even with a rebellious teenager, he gets in the army and he's thinking, what was I thinking? Right? Maybe I shouldn't have trusted myself. Because he got himself there. He, as the one who, to whom he listened, he got himself in that situation. But if it's not myself, then who should it be? See, here's the thing. The older I get, <laughs> the older I get, the more I like to be told what to do. It's pretty funny. I love Google Maps for driving, right? I just follow the blue line, right? And just, either, just yesterday, I was, uh, was over at John, John Gregory's house. We're having a wonderful barbecue, and his son-in-law, Mike, has a Tesla. And Mike's like, hey, you want to take it for a test drive? You want to go with me? So I'm like, sure. You know, we jump in the car, and like, we're driving along. And literally, not only, is it, not only is there a Google Maps type thing, a follow, but the car actually drives itself. So he takes his hands off the wheel and, 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 and sitting there going along by itself. Right? Isn't that one of the idea of actually not being in control? Huh. The older I get, I love to be told what to do, not only for Google Maps, but for, for exercise. I love a trainer. To tell me, do this, do this, do that, do that. I don't have to sit there and figure out the workout on my own. Or for my money, to have a financial planner to say, hey, look, this is how you should invest your money. Or for my marriage or for parenting, to have a counselor saying, hey, look, do this. She wants you to do this. This is what she's really saying. This is what you're supposed to do for your kids. It's great to have that someone actually outside of us. But did you notice those words, the older I get? the more I want to be told what to do. See, the thing is, right, in our youth, but often it's not just the young. We all have this instinct that says, I got this. I got this. I know what I'm doing. But do we? I mean, do we really know what we're doing? Remember those moments of silence? You look in the mirror and you say, 
you know, I really have no idea what I'm doing. No idea. I thought I knew how to make this marriage thing work. I thought I knew how to make this job thing work. I thought I knew how to make this parenting thing work. I thought I knew how to make this dating thing work. I thought I knew how to do whatever it is, and I don't think I do. And we get stuck. We get stuck. And we get down, we get into a place, a situation, a circumstance that we never wanted to be in. So here's a key idea I want you to hear. We need to try this on for size. You don't have to believe me quite yet, but listen to this possibility. What if good laws actually lead to freedom? That sounds so counterintuitive. What if good law leads to liberty? What if good laws lead to life, to true life? What if good laws lead, lead not only to freedom, but flourishing? Right? Think, of, think of just simply something as simple as traffic laws. See, traffic laws, what do they enable us to do? You can just go from here to there, and you can be thinking about the things. You do, you do know that if you stay in the confines of these laws, these rules, overwhelmingly the odds are that you're going to be safe. See, because good laws lead to freedom, they lead to liberty, they lead to flourishing. Or think of the idea of a good diet. If you're on a good diet, your body's going to be healthy and you have a good life, you're following a diet, you're following a regimen, you're following a guy, just ask Linda here, right? Good diet leads to a good life. See, good, li- good laws lead to freedom, they lead to flourishing, because they guide us and they guard us. They guide us and they guard us. They bring peace and rest. Again, if you recall the call to worship this morning from Matthew 11, Jesus is saying what? If you're weary, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because all you have to do is just listen to me. Just take me at my word. You don't, have to have your, you don't have to figure everything out on your own. See, if we're tired, if we're getting we're tired, if we're tired of getting it wrong, good laws can be life-giving. In fact, they can be great news. In fact, God's law can actually be good news. Some of you may have grown up in church context, or you've been long, for a long time exposed to ways of thinking about Christianity and religion that just say law is bad. Jesus good, law bad. Law is somehow the enemy. And I can't tell you how foreign that is from Scripture. If you want to, if you've got a, if you have your pew Bible, then you want to follow along, turn to page, five, to page 471. It's Psalm, Psalm 19. Something in Psalms and the Bible in general, in the Psalms, God's law is something that is celebrated. As we turn to the Ten Commandments this morning, I want us to see the beauty, the goodness, the shrewdness, the life-giving nature of, of God's law. And that's why I've called this sermon series "The Way of Life," the way of life, because I want us to begin to think about God's law differently. See, in Psalm one nineteen, there's a celebration first of God's world. And then there's a celebration of God's word. That's how there, those are two ways that God speaks to us. He speaks to us through his world, and he speaks to us, secondly, through his word. And if you would, it's again, it's on page 471, if you follow, want to follow along in your pew Bible. And so it begins in verse 7. So Psalm 19, verse 7, this is a psalm of David. And this psalm boasts of the beauty and goodness of God's law. Listen to these words. It's so amazing. The law of the Lord, verse 7, is perfect. Right? It's not our best guess. It's not just you know, good, you know, good. It's not just sort of legal precedent that, you know, that we're sort of honing in. It's perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. Refreshing the soul. You're discouraged. You're overwhelmed. You don't know what to do. God's 
law gives us direction. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Are you naive? Are you simple? It makes us wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. When you you don't know what to do and you're confused, you're overwhelmed, someone shows you the way to go, it's like, oh, it's great. You're given joy. There's a sense of relief. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. Verse 10, they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them, here's the guarding and the guiding, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Isn't that beautiful? That's my goal the next couple months is I want to be able to share with you and show you the beauty, the goodness of God's law and how it is not only a guard keeping us from what is evil, but a guide steering us toward what is good, what is truly the life that is life. Okay, so as we look at God, as we look at Deuteronomy chapter 5 um, this, this morning, I want to just remind ourselves, we are all listening to someone, right? And we'll return to this theme. And the question is, who is it? To whom are we listening? And why them? Because whoever they are, they own us. They command our lives. They're they're, they're exercising an incredible amount of of influence. And not not to stop and say, wait a minute, to whom am I listening and why is a major life mistake. And it's no surprise, if I go ahead and turn from there back to, it's on page 154, it's Deuteronomy chapter 5. The context here in Deuteronomy is that God's people have been brought out of, the, out of slavery from the land of Egypt. Uh, Moses will be reminding us of that a second, it's in our text. He brought them out of Egypt and God's people are at the doorstep of the promised land. They're at the doorstep of the land of Canaan and it's there, right at the doorstep, that God gives his people uh, the law one more time. In fact, this is the second giving of the Ten Commandments. It's the second giving of the laws. As, as they are about to enter into the Promised Land, Moses is preparing them for, uh, to, to, to flourish in the land of promise by giving them God's law. So we see that. Again, it's on page uh, 154 if you want to follow along there. And so it's not surprising, as I ask the question, when I say, hey, look, we're all listening to someone, that verse 1 begins as it does. Do you see the first word of verse 1? Here. Or listen, listen, give heed, O Israel, hear the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. So Moses is exhorting God's people to listen to him. So let me, that's the first thing I kind of want you to hear this morning, is that the Ten Commandments are given to those who know that they need to listen. It's given to those who realize they don't have it figured out. It's given to those who know that that by themselves they will take the wrong path. It's given to those who know they need advice. They need counsel to to, to walk on the paths of life. Okay, and why, but why should God listen? Excuse me, why should Israel listen to God? Why should they listen to this God called Yahweh? Well, look look at these first uh, four or five verses here. The first reason they should listen to God is because he's faithful to them. He's faithful. Look at verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3 says, The Lord our God made a covenant with us 
at Horeb. Horeb is a mountain. It's another name for Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, says Moses, God, Yahweh, our God, made a covenant with us. That is to say, he entered into a relationship with us. He made promises to us, saying that he will never leave us or forsake us. He's faithful. We listen to Yahweh. We want to follow his advice, his counsel, his commands, because he's faithful. He's not fickle. He's not fair-weathered. He's a promise-making, promise-keeping God. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Sometimes it can be helpful to think of what happened at Mount Sinai like a wedding ceremony. That's what happened. At Mount Sinai, God and, and his people got married. Now think of vows. Think of a marriage in which the wedding vows were kept perfectly. Wouldn't that be an incredibly good marriage? That's what the Ten Commandments are. They're Israel's vows before the Lord. So why should, we, why, should we listen to Israel? why should we listen to Israel's God? Because he's been faithful to them. The second reason we should listen to Israel's God is because he's far above them. And he's for them. He's far above them and he's for them. Look at verses 4 and 5. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire. But he mentions the fire twice. Out of the fire on the mountain. And yet in parentheses, at that time I stood between the Lord and you as a mediator to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. So here fire, and this is something, you, if, you, if you know the Old Testament at all, God is associated with the fire all throughout the Old Testament. For the first time is in actually Genesis 15 where God meets Abraham and he appears to Abraham in, in this, this fire pot, this sort of, um, this sort of like a, 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 um, a, a flashing... Uh, um, was the one with a flashlight type, a torch, you might say. He appears to, to Abraham, and, and there's this floating torch, and it fires through. But God always appears in some way, or some, some form or another, in, 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 a, in a manner related to fire. When God appears to Moses in Exodus 3 and 4, he appears out of a burning bush. And here, uh, on Mount Sinai, God appears to them. He comes down on the mountain, and, he, and he's fire. Why fire? Well, for a couple of reasons. I mean, there's three or four. I'm going to give you two of them. They're the most important here. First, fire, especially think of Moses and the burning bush. What intrigues Moses is that the fire does not, that the bush does not burn up. And the idea here is that God is one who needs nothing. He is a fire that needs no fuel. He is utterly self-sufficient. He needs nothing from us. And that's actually incredibly reassuring. Because this advice, this counsel, it's not given, there's no quid pro quo, there's no, there's no catch. God is giving us advice because he doesn't need anything from us. He's not trying to get something from us. He's not trying to, you know, there's no angle, there's no agenda. He speaks out of the fire, out of a self-sufficient fire, needing nothing. He is for us. He gives us counsel purely for our own good. But this fire not only stands for self-sufficiency and then for, you know, so no, no, no idea of, of, of manipulation there. It all sta also stands for unapproachability. That God is totally unapproachable. He is far above us. That he sees the big picture. He knows all that's going on. He's far, above, he's far above Israel and he's for Israel because he speaks as one who is, who, who is speaking out of the fire utterly above us, utterly transcendent, utterly unapproachable, but also incredibly self-sufficient, needing nothing from us. So why should Israel listen to God? Because he's faithful to them? Because he's far above them, he's for them? And finally, 
verse 6, because he's freed them. He's freed them. Look at verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I am so for you. I am for you getting out of oppression. I'm for you getting out of injustice. I'm for you getting out of, out of a, a way of life that is exhausting, that is humiliating, that is degrading. You were property. You were nobodies. You had no legal status whatsoever. I identified myself with you. I called you my people, and I've brought you out. So why, why, why should Israel listen to God? Because he's faithful. Because he's for them. He's far above them. And he's freed them. He has freed them from slavery. So what does he want them to hear? I just want to take a few minutes. This first, first commandment is absolutely pivotal. I just want to take a few minutes here. It doesn't want to take long. It's this simple words. Look at verse 7. You shall have no other gods before me. Listen, in the ancient Near Eastern world and in the Greco-Roman world, a god's, god or a god can be a number of different things. We often think first and rightly of just various deities of the ancient world. You know, the gods of Egypt, the gods of Babylon, the gods of, of Moab, or whatever it might be. These various deities. Not only deities, but angelic beings. You can find various places in the Old Testament where, where gods or where angelic beings are called, referred to as gods. So it's pagan deities, it's angelic beings, but it's not only deities, it's also actual human princes. Various kings and authorities, they're referred to as princes. In fact, if you would, turn, turn to the right, I think, to page 507, Psalm 82. Look at Psalm 82. There's a place here, it shows you where actually kings, those in authority, are referred to as gods. Again, it's page 507. We need to see this because it's going to be really helpful in understanding the application of what Psalm 1 is, of what, excuse me, of what the first commandment is saying. Psalm 82, uh, it's page 507. We read this, verse 1. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the, and the NIV kind of helpfully puts gods in parentheses. He renders judgment among the gods. Now first you think, okay, maybe these are pagan deities. But they're not. Let's listen to what he says. How long, this is God speaking, how long will you defend the unjust? How long will you show partiality to the wicked? Now wait, is he talking about some pagan deities here? Who's he talking about? In verse 3, defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. See, that's the jobs of kings. Kings and those in authority are supposed to do that very thing. Verse 5, the gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Verse 6, I said you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. See, these, he's, he's saying, look, I said that you were God, I called you gods, but you're going to die like anybody else. You're just, you're, just, you're, just, you're just kings. And so what's so important in Psalm 82 here is to see that when, when the Old Testament uses the word God, and this is so important, foot stomp, foot stomp. In the Old Testament and New, a God is simply a reference to an authority. It's an authority. It can be a human authority, it can be an angelic authority, it can be a divine authority. But the word God is best, if you wanted to think what a one, a one word summary of what a God is, it's an authority figure. So there are places where the Pharaoh is called God, 
There are places where princes and various kings are called, called gods. In fact, even in the, in the New Testament, there's a place where our own cravings and personal preferences are called a gods. In, in, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul speaks of a certain kind of person. He says, their god is their stomach. Is that interesting? So our God can be this, so our cravings, our personal preferences can actually be an authority in our lives. They're the the thing to which we listen most, the thing that guides us, the thing before which we bow down. We take our cues and our commands from our stomachs. And so the idea here is when, 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 when Moses, or when God through Moses says, you shall have no other gods before me, He's saying this, you shall have no other authorities before me. So again, let me just contrast this idea, okay? So various other gods, other competing gods could be things like pagan deities, of course. They could be other princes or political powers. They could be personal preference. But gods can also be things like parents. And so for some of you, your parents are the final say. Or that's your, part of your story. You know people who their mother or their father is so influential, so final, that, that, that who they are is all defined by, and they, they live according to what parents say. I can remember counseling a young man who, um, in his late 20s, who um, his parents had gotten divorced when he was like eight or nine. And for reasons that I, I still to this day have never been able to figure out because, you know, sin just doesn't make sense. His mother blamed him, the eight or nine, eight or nine, nine-year-old kid boy for the divorce. And he, he was 27, it was 20 years later, carrying that guilt and that shame with him. Because his mom had been larger than life. It's mom, Right? And mom had just over and over again reminded him that he was at fault for this divorce. And here's my question this morning. Our parents, are they the final authority? Is there one higher than parents? Or can you go back to the politicians? Pharaoh, is there one greater than Pharaoh? Are the Israelites really just property? Were the Afro-American slaves of the, of the, of the, Amer- of the, of the American South, was, was the government, was it the final authority? Was, it, was their decision to render them mere property the last word, the truest word? Those, those uh, soldiers, those nonviolent soldiers of the civil rights movement, they fought against the government. They fought against a culture that was, all, that was, that was so utterly persuaded that it, that it knew where black people belonged. It, they knew they should know their place. Where, 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 the, where the politicians, where the public opinion polls, were those the final authority? Our parents, our, our, our own spouses, our partners, are they the final authority? Think of the power of social media and popular opinion. Once it counseled a young lady in her early 20s, as she was struggling with a life and death struggle with an eating disorder. And she wanted to do everything she could to make her body look like the body of her hero, uh, of a, her the, sort of this uh, world-renowned gymnast. And she did everything she could, including not eating uh, for days, 
to make her body look a certain way because to her, this pop icon, athletic icon, was the way that her body was supposed to look. Does popular opinion have the last word? Or think of this, think of professors. These are all persons who are authority figures to whom we can look at and say, you know what, they they have influence, they have expertise, they have knowledge, I'm going to follow them. And we, we go about doing that, we look for worth from them, we look for value, we look for wisdom from them, we look for our welfare from them, and we, and we may not call them gods, but that is how they're functioning in our lives. And especially it's true of professors and just of science in general. So often in our world, in our Western world, we look to science as this sort of ultimate source of authority. But is it? I mean, is it really? I mean, for example, I don't know if you've ever heard of a book called The Almagest. It's called, written by a, a second century uh, um, scientist, mathematician named Ptolemy, astronomer Ptolemy. And The Almagest was kind of the textbook for astronomy from like the second century to about the 13th or 14th century. Think about that. Imagine that. You write a textbook, and it's the textbook on astronomy for over a millennium until a guy named Galileo comes along. <laughs> right? But this is it. Think about that. For a thousand years, this is what's true about the stars. Imagine someone along the way going, I don't know. Imagine Galileo coming along and saying, I don't think this is right. You think, bro, it's a thousand years. How could you not know? This is science. Science is the final authority. It's always right. Or just to just sort of very humorous, I want to just real quickly play a clip. Um, Ron, if you would, this is sort of a clip I think just really captures the authority of science. Now listen, let me, I'll make a few comments to qualify. This is somewhat humorous, but I want you to see this. This is a, this is a, a, a clip that I think captures uh, the limits of science as an authority. Ron, go ahead and, and show that clip here. Wait! Stop! Don't eat that food! Who are you? What are you doing in our house? I'm from the future. I'm here to warn you, don't eat that food. Why not? The eggs. They're full of cholesterol. What? Cholesterol. It it clogs up your arteries. Eating even just one egg can dramatically increase your chance of heart attack. Don't eat eggs. Oh my god. Thank you. You're welcome. Godspeed. Well, I guess I better take those eggs. Wait! Stop! You're back! Yeah. We were wrong about the eggs. How? Well, it turns out there's two types of cholesterol. There's good cholesterol and bad cholesterol, and eggs actually have both. So you can eat eggs, but just don't eat the egg yolks. So t- stick with the egg whites. Thank- yes, thank you. Yeah. Godspeed! Yeah, yeah, okay, so it turns out that the amount of cholesterol in a food doesn't actually affect how much cholesterol ends up in your blood. The eggs are probably fine. In fact, we sort of don't even know what cholesterol is. But the steak! You can't eat the steak! Why not? Turns out that red meat increases your chance of heart attack. You have to cut out red meat, so no steak! Thank you. Godspeed. Well, no, no steak, mister. What? Wait! We were wrong about the steak! It's the toast. 
Man was not meant to eat bread. What do you mean, man was not meant to eat bread? Well, if you think about it, human beings should really only be eating what our Paleolithic ancestors ate. So, therefore, no bread, no toast. How do you know what our Paleolithic ancestors ate? Well, we, we just have to guess, right? I mean, we don't have any way of knowing what... Alright, it's riding, go ahead and cut it off. I think you get the point. Now listen, now listen, uh, you, can, you can watch the rest of it uh, uh, later on, uh, Lucas. Um, it's, it's good. So, so what's, what's being communicated there? Listen, I'm not here to mock science, okay? The scientific endeavor is actually its Christian origins and Christian roots. The notion that our, that our world has a, has a unit, is, is a, uh, there's a uniformity to our, 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 our world is a deeply, profoundly Christian idea. But there's a difference between science and what I want to call scientism that looks to science to answer all the questions of life, to make it an ultimate authority. And that, that video very humorously captures, captures the way that, that science is doing the best it can. If it's good, it's amazing, but it comes across as an authority, as a god. Okay, you with me? And what we're seeing here in this first commandment is a very simple idea, that God is looking at us and saying, look, a god is an authority figure to, to whom we look for our worth, to whom we look for wisdom, to whom we look for our welfare, and to whom we look for, for our various wishes and wants. That's what a God is. And, 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 and Israel's God, Yahweh, is saying, look, I am to be the final word on your worth. I am to be the final word on where you get wisdom. I am to be the final word on your welfare. I will take care of you. So want me. Worship me. Give me all of your allegiance. Because I'm faithful to you. I'm for you. I'm far above you. I see the big picture. And I've freed you. I know it's going to lead. I'm going to know how to lead you out of bondage. I know how to lead you out of a place of darkness. Listen to me. See, worship, the worship that the, song, that, 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 that the first commandment calls of us is an exclusivity that says, I will trust him first. I will listen to him first. I will obey him first. I will seek his help first. I will trust him most. You see that first, that most, that sort of exclusivity that says, you know what? As I look around me, there is no one like him. And therefore I, he will be my God. And before every other God, in fact, you see it, some of the, it's, it's sort, of, sort of, if you have your, if I have it in front of you, you'll see that NIV itself has a, an alternate translation note because you can translate it. You, you shall have another other gods besides me. The NIV's main translation is probably the most accurate. You shall have another gods in addition to me or, or along with me. The idea, again, he's not, he's not saying you can't have other authorities in your life. Your parents should be an authority in your life. And what we're talking about in the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. It is important to have authorities in your life. But God is saying the final authority, the decisive authority, is the Lord. Not politicians or princes, not professors, not parents, not even a partner or spouse, 
not even a pastor or a priest. Okay, you with me? This is the first commandment saying the most influential. Let me say it this way. The one with the most influence, the one with the most expertise is, is the God of Israel. Look to him for your worth. Not your spouse. Not your boss. Not, your, not the politicians. Look to him for wisdom. He made you. He knows you inside out. Look to him for your welfare. Look to him to be on the right side of history, to win, to really win in the world. Let me just make a brief application here. How do we do this on a daily basis? You follow the first commandment by comparing, by comparing God to all these other authority sources. Mom loves you. She's been around for a long time. Guess who loves you more? God does. Dad is wise. Professors are smart. God is a lot smarter. <laughs> okay? right? This is not hard to compare, to say, you know what? I, I think I know what I'm doing. I have, deg- I have a terminal degree. Uh, I've been around for a while. I was in the military. You know, I know a lot of things. I know a lot more than most people. But God knows way more than I do. I'm not going to trust myself. I'm not going to look to myself for wisdom. Why would I do that for? You follow the first commandment by obeying. See, there's no one like God. There's no, take, take this for example. Three times in the Psalms, God says that, that he laughs at the wicked. Think about that for a second. If you've been wronged deeply, I mean, if you've been really hurt in life, and we can look to politicians, we can look to princes, we can look to others, we can look to parents, we can look to ourselves, but we're not going to get the justice that we desire except for from God. Because three times in the Psalms it says, God laughs at the wicked. Why does he laugh at the wicked? Because he knows their day is coming. There is nothing that God does not forget. You will get justice, and you will get it from one place, from God. There's no one, there's no one else. There's no one like God who's able to turn bad things into good things. Just go read the story. I just recently reread the story of Joseph to see how God is able to take the things in your life that you think are utterly irredeemable, utterly disastrous, utterly a mistake. There is one and one alone who can take that disaster and turn it into something so beautiful. He is the one and only one who will make all things new. There's no one like him who knows us inside and out. Do you feel alone? Do you feel scared? Do you feel like no one understands you? Go read Psalm 139 where it speaks of how God knows us so intimately, perfectly. He knows our yearnings. He knows our longings. He knows our shame. There's no one like him. This is how we follow the first commandment, by, real, by comparing, by realizing that there's no one like him. And the, who he is is manifest supremely in the person of Jesus. You want to know who God is. You want to know who Israel's God is. You want to know why he's deserving of all of our allegiance, why there should be no other king before him, no other God before him, no other Lord before him. All you have to do is look at the life of Jesus. And one whose welcome is beyond, just beyond, it's just scandalous. 
who welcomed all the wrong people, one whose wisdom was truly otherworldly, whose counsel on some of the most intricate and intimate matters of life is just so life-giving, one whose welcome, whose wisdom, and whose wonder is amazing. His wonder is as he stood there on the cross saying, Father, please forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. This is our God. This is the first commandment. It's beautiful. Let me just close with this story. You know, we're so often tempted to trust ourselves. And I want to use this story. This, is, this, came, this is from a, a book called The Death of Exper- Expertise. And it captures, I think, just the distance between humanity and God and why we should lean and trust in him. It was in the 1980s at Dartmouth College. There was a renowned astrophysicist by the name of Robert Jastrow. And he was giving this lecture on, this is the 1980s, remember the whole Ronald Reagan, the Star Wars program, the, the missile defense program, and he was giving his, uh, his lecture to this massive room of students, uh, undergraduate, graduate students, and professors, there were media people there, and he finishes his, his lecture on why he was supporting uh, this particular uh, d- missile defense strategy or whatever it was, and a sophomore undergraduate stands up and asks a question. And, and he really wants to persuade the professor that, that, that he's wrong, that his whole lecture is wrong. And, and, and the, the professor, you know, just respectfully listens and then gives a response to the student. And the student, in response to this response, says, huh, well, okay. And he shrugs his shoulders and he says, I guess my, I says, well, I guess your, your guess is as good as mine. And then sits down. And there's this pause at which the, pro- the professor very appropriately said, no, 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 no. My guesses are way better than your guesses. See, so often we go through life and we just think, you know, what does God know? My guesses are as good as his. And the truth is we, have one, one, we worship one who has never guessed about anything. He doesn't guess. He decreed all things into existence. And he knows how much you're worth. And all all your unworthiness, he has washed away through the blood of his son. And he welcomes you. And he calls calls us away from trying to figure out life on our own. And he says, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. Do you want that rest? It's yours for the taking.